Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. The greatest preaching service described in the Bible, as to its circumstances, contains these precious words in which we delight. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That is Bible preaching. It's not entertaining. It's not entertainment. It's not sharing personal illustrations. It's not telling jokes or anecdotes. It's reading the Word of God distinctly and giving the sense. I have turned you to Luke chapter 8 so that you can believe that what my ambition is for this assembly might be possible. Jesus preached to the people when they gathered together in verse 4. He spake a parable. Verse 5, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? Matthew chapter 13 expounds it even further by saying, These apostles of his came to him and told him, The people do not understand you when you speak in parables. It is a common misconception and another lie taught in so many pulpits that a parable is an earthly story conveying heavenly meaning for simple people to understand. That is diametrically, completely, absolutely, 180 degrees and 100% a lie. Jesus spoke in parables so that the people could not understand Him. Because it was not given to them to understand Him. That's what Matthew chapter 13 explains very clearly. That's why He said in verse 10 right here, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now watch the interpretation of a parable when the Lord Jesus Christ gives it, and see if I can learn by His example. This is how long it takes to explain a parable that was so confusing the apostles asked Jesus to stop using such obscure language. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they, which, when they have heard, go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they 
which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. The bottom line to the lesson, verse 18. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear, because you and I are capable of being all four kinds of ground every time we hear a sermon preached. We can be stony ground, rocky ground, wayside, thorny ground hearers, or we can be good ground. It is up to us how we pay attention, how we prepare ourselves, how we pray for assemblies, and how we participate by girding up the loins of our mind and paying attention. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whomsoever hath, to him shall be given. Truth will be piled upon truth. And whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. The little bit of understanding that some people have will be taken from them if they do not respond to Bible preaching of truth and wisdom the way they should. Now all of that was said to show you that parables should not take long. Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, and blessed God, because of the example of your Son Jesus Christ, help me to convey powerful truth to these people by two parables in a few minutes. I read to you in the Word of God distinctly, beginning at Matthew twenty-one thirty-three. Hear another parable. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son... They said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. 
But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Amen and amen. This is the word of God. Now let's see if I can do what Jesus did with Luke 8. Get your eyes on that 33rd verse and follow with me. We are clearly told this is a parable, which means the details are not as important as the overall lesson. But the details are still important, especially in a parable where it says the kingdom of heaven. As we will see as we proceed. Verse 33. The certain householder is God himself, who chose Israel as his peculiar people on earth. Still in verse 33. Follow with me. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The vineyard is the church and kingdom of God, the nation of Israel of the Old Testament. It is called a church. It is the Old Testament church. It's the nation of Israel. It was a state church that was given to the people that Moses led out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, and they possessed Canaan with the religion and the nation of God. That is the vineyard. The hedging of the vineyard is God's careful and special protection of His Old Testament church. The digging of a wine press in it is God's giving of pleasure and prosperity to that Old Testament church. The building of a tower is God's blessing of eminence, preeminence, exaltation to that nation so that they were no longer the most obscure and smallest nation on earth. The husbandman is Israel, the Jews, who were to take care of that vineyard, that nation, that church, that religion, that kingdom that God gave them. The far country is heaven, where God dwells and where Jesus went after His ascension. The time of the fruit is when God expects worship and obedience and service from His people. We are in verse 34 now. The time of the fruit is when God examines His church and His kingdom on earth for obedience. The servants that He sent to gather the fruit are the prophets and John the Baptist, and the apostles that God sent to the nation of Israel before Jesus, while Jesus was alive, and after Jesus was killed, buried, and rose again, and ascended up into heaven, He sent His apostles. God sent them to stir up the people to His worship, to gather fruits from His nation and from His church. The mistreatment in verse 35 of the servants is the nation of Israel abusing or killing the prophets of God? Remember what Joash did? Do you remember? The killing of the prophets of God and the killing of the apostles. The son of the householder that the Lord of the vineyard is going to send to gather his fruits is the Lord Jesus Christ. The casting out of the Son is Israel's rejection as Jesus as their Messiah. The killing of the Son is the sham of a trial and the crucifixion and the conspiracy of the Jews against the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord Jesus then asked a question. What will the Lord of that vineyard do to those husbandmen that didn't render fruits when they should have, that killed his servants and killed his son? The Pharisees and the chief priests answered by saying, He will miserably destroy those wicked men. And will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. That's verse 41. The miserable destruction of the wicked murderers is the Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ bringing the Roman armies into Palestine in 70 A.D. and leveling the city of Jerusalem at the cost of 1.1 million Jewish lives inside those city walls, an event that is ignored in most churches today because they would rather watch Left Behind written by Tim LaHaye. They do not want the truth of God's Word. Verse 41, the miserable destruction of those wicked murders is God's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., The letting out, that is the renting, that is the giving of the vineyard to another nation. That Jesus said in verse 43, He was going to take it from them, that is His audience that was listening to Him, and give it to another nation. Of course, it wouldn't be a Jewish nation. That is the giving of the gospel and the taking of the church away from the Jews and giving it to the Gentiles. The fruits in their seasons is the Gentile church giving God the worship and the obedience that He seeks. And the Gentile church has done it for 2,000 years, and they've done it a whole lot better than Israel did for the 1,500 years they had it from Mount Sinai to the arrival of John the Baptist. The lesson in verse 45. The lesson is easy enough. It was to condemn the Jewish chief priests and the religious leaders, and it was to prophesy of what they were going to do to him and of what he was going to do to them. He quoted in verse 42 from Psalm 118 that the stone which the builders rejected, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, is become the head of the corner, and it's the Lord's doing. The Lord raised Him from the dead. They crucified Him and hung Him on a cross, but the Lord raised Him from the dead. Jesus, in verse 43, bluntly told the chief priests and the Pharisees, Therefore, say I unto you, that is in light of the parable I just gave, and in light of the Scripture that supports it from Psalm 118, Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. That is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, of a holy nation, a spiritual kingdom that exists in this world, it will be taken from the Jewish nation where the worship of God had been limited for 1,500 years and it will be given to another nation which will give him the fruits that he deserves. And that was the gospel going to the Gentiles and the church of God going to the Gentiles. Verse 44, Falling on the stone Christ Jesus is repentance and faith that changes a person's life. If you fall on the rock, Christ Jesus, your life will be broken. Meaning, it will be reformed. It will be refashioned into a new life. Because therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is the breaking that takes place in repentance and faith when we fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe Him and we rise to keep His commandments and to walk in newness of life out of the waters of baptism. But, on whomsoever the rock Christ Jesus shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the Lord Jesus Christ, my King, and the Lord Jesus Christ, your King, came figuratively with the Roman armies of Titus Caesar in 70 A.D. and ground the Jewish nation to powder. You have never read anything in the annals of military history or human history that can even approach the tribulation that was thrown upon the Jewish nation inside the walls of Jerusalem between 67 and 70 A.D. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were church picnics. Less than 100,000 died from all causes in either city. Most of those that died, died in one blinding flash of light without pain. Women ate their children in the siege of Jerusalem. And it was 1.1 million that died. Jesus said there would never be a tribulation like it after it, and there had never been a tribulation like it before it. A perfect, fitting judgment For crucifying the Lord of glory. For killing the heir of the vineyard. For killing the Son of God. It is a shame that Tim LaHaye, John Darby, Jack Van Empey, Hal Lindsey, and others don't understand the Bible. That they don't understand the Bible and the words of Jesus as well as the chief priests and the Pharisees did. Because the chief priests and the Pharisees understood that this passage was not referring to some generation still future for us. It wasn't even a generation future to them. They understood that it was talking about them. Lord have mercy! The ignorance that reigns. God, thank you for... We are not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth that thou hast shown us. But we thank thee and we bless thee for understanding this, one of the simplest of all parables. Jesus puts the timing on it. The kingdom shall be taken from you and given to another nation. And we're able to read the book of Acts and we're able to come to the 28th chapter where Paul said, You have judged yourselves unworthy of the kingdom of God. I will preach to the Gentiles. The wicked Jews conspired with Judas. It's a beautiful parable. Did you read it? The husbandmen saw the son in verse 38. They said among themselves, they conspired together and they hired Judas to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who repented and changed their lives for Him were saved from that untoward generation. 
a great part of the preaching on Pentecost was to save themselves from that untoward generation. The wicked generation that would kill their own Messiah, Peter said, the, the whole, Luke wrote by the Holy Spirit that Peter preached many other words on Pentecost that could be summarized this way. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Those who repented and changed their lives were saved from God's judgment on that generation because they had been told when they see the Roman armies approaching, they are to get out of Jerusalem and woe unto mothers that would be nursing at such a time. Can you believe Tim LaHaye thinks it's a terrible thing for a mother to be nursing when Jesus comes a second time? Listen, for a mother to be nursing her baby and to go up into heaven at the rapture would just be the most wonderful thing possible. That's right. She could be singing, my Jesus, I love thee, nursing her baby and going to heaven. Why does Matthew 24 say that nursing your baby would be an obstacle, a hindrance, and a thing you don't want to have happen, and so you should pray against it? Because when armies encompass a city and you have to leave house and home and go hide in the mountains of Judea, the last thing you want to be doing is nursing a baby. Brother, are you still with us on that? I know you are. Is the Lord merciful to us? Is this ABCs? It's so simple. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. Let's apply it. God, our Father in heaven, is going to defend his Son and his gospel and avenge evildoers with severe judgment. This was his church. We are not reading about Philistines or Egyptians, Hittites or Amalekites. We are reading about his church. What does his son mean to you? He wants fruits. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I hope to God that this second message will just keep the first message in your minds. He's looking for some fruits from you. The Christian religion is a religion of mental toughness. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. He has given us his son. He wants some fruits from his vineyard. His vineyard is right here. It is the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing in the worship of God, the love of the saints, the adoration of Jesus Christ, and the hiding of God's word in your heart, and the joy in the gospel, and the hope of eternal life? And looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, are you doing those things? If you are not doing those things, he is looking upon you. And he, that stone is preparing to grind. Ask the Corinthians. The Bible tells me that many of the Corinthians were dead already, prematurely. Many were sick and many were weak. Because they did not take the Lord's Supper, which is the commemorative ordinance of the New Testament church, to remember the death of the Son, of the Lord, of the vineyard. So God had cut off men and women and children in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. If a man will fall on Jesus Christ and repent for his foolishness, you'll be broken. But what a better man will rise. And you'll be saved because of it. If a man refuses to obey Jesus Christ, he will come in judgment. Even in his own churches, ask Ananias and Sapphira. They thought they could lie to the Son of God and his apostles. They fell down dead in the church. 
Jesus hasn't changed one bit from the Old Testament God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He walked in the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and he said about that wicked prophetess in the church at at, uh, Thyatira that he was going to cast her into a bed and those that committed spiritual adultery with her and destroy them. These are his churches. The rest of the world has their day at the day of judgment. Are you rendering God the fruits of righteousness and holy living that he demands and expects? I'm asking you about the ROI that God measures from you. You say, what does ROI mean? Return on investment. What is his return on investment from you? You say, well, what's his investment? His son. What's my return? Repentance and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the duties of the New Testament and the pleasures and joy of delighting in Him. Of trusting in Him and of patience of hope. Of looking for His coming instead of looking for a promotion. Looking for His coming instead of looking for the Carolina Panthers to win this afternoon. One parable done. Chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables. And said... Are you with me? Matthew 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
For many are called, but few are chosen. Get your eyes back on the first verse of chapter 22. And let me try to follow the holy and perfect example of my Lord. The kingdom of heaven in the second verse is the spiritual rule of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to earth, including his churches and the gospel administration of the New Testament, first preached by John, then Jesus, then his apostles, and then those ordained by his apostles. It is the church. It is the gospel era in which you live. The certain king is God, who made his son Jesus groom of the New Testament church. The wedding is the gospel church administration of the new covenant with the Messiah. The servants are prophets and apostles, who by prophecy and preaching gave invitation to men to to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who were bidden first were the Jews, who had the first knowledge. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul would say of the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 15 that he was a minister of the circumcision. Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. They were the first to hear about the marriage. This is not the marriage supper of the Lamb in eternity. This is the marriage of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving Him, sitting down at His table, and having a feast with our bridegroom who died for us in order to marry us, and He has married the church to Himself. He'll not lose a single one of them. This is the gospel invitation for men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the servants are prophets and apostles. Those who were bidden were the Jews. Verse 4, the dinner of oxen and fatlings are the glorious gospel of grace. And the covenant of grace and all the blessings of the fat things that are contained in gospel worship of Jesus Christ. There are cross-references that could be multiplied that would take hours for me to deliver to you that are easily obtained. But that is not my point. My point is I want to get down to you speechless apostate false professors and see if I can't give you a little conviction before we go home. Verse 4. The all things are ready is the complete fulfillment of Bible prophecy and divine timing for the final phase of God's dealing with mankind that is the New Testament. Everything else has been shaken away. I began the day with Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Paul was not describing something to happen in the future. Paul was describing something already true in his day. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. All things are ready. John the Baptist burst on the scene saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah of God was coming. And he came a few months later. He was six months younger than John his cousin. And John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, which made Jesus a what? 
a Baptist. Of course he was a Baptist. He went down into the Jordan River and was laid into those waters by John the Baptist. Anybody who's baptized by a Baptist is a Baptist. That's one of the simplest points of the Bible. No one would ever, ever, ever come up with infant sprinkling by reading a Bible. Ever. They have to work themselves raw, trying to find verses they can twist, corrupt, and pervert to try to justify something so idiotic as infant sprinkling. If it wasn't for a Roman Catholic tradition to defend, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, and the Methodists would never have even imagined the idiocy of infant sprinkling. But I am off subject. We have this parable, and it's not about baptism. It says all things are ready, because John said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 5. They made light of it. The carnal response of fleshly Jews to the glorious gospel that John and Jesus preached and the apostles preached after them was to make light of it. They went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. What are you going to do this afternoon? What are you going to go to? The NFL? What are you going to do this afternoon? What are you going to talk about, think about? They made light of it. Verse 6, the remnant are those wicked Jews that slew the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. Verse 7, the king's armies are the Roman armies under Titus who destroyed the Jews in 70 A.D. exactly as the seventh verse describes. He was wroth. Do you think God, if God was angry enough to kill Uzzah for David moving the Ark of the Covenant with the best of intentions in the world, if God was angry enough to keep Moses from the land of Canaan because he smote the rock instead of speaking to it, if God was angry enough to smite down Nadab and Abihu who were offering a new kind of worship, a new kind of fire to God, they were the right man at the right place, offering it to the right God. If God was angry enough to burn them up in an instant of time, in his own tabernacle, how angry was God when the Jews killed his son? Right. Well, I would never do such a thing. No, you'll just go home and make light of it. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. It's very important. Yes, you will. You're going to go home and worry about working out. You're going to go home and worrying about what you're going to eat. You're going to go home and worry about the NFL schedule for the day. Yes, you will. Verse 8. Verse 8. What year are we at on a timeline? 71 A.D. Stretching to 2010. Verse 8. The servants are the apostles, prophets, and elders, and bishops of the New Testament after the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 9, the ones found in the highway are you and me. They were not found in the well-named streets of the cities of Jerusalem or the cities of Judea. This is the highways and byways of the world. The Lord sent His preachers that were ordained by apostles, and they went and found you and me. Verse 10, so those servants went out. These are the bishops ordained by bishops that were ordained by Paul. And found guests, both bad and good. 
those poor men and I among them by God's most fantastic grace that I would be among them never want bad church members. Never want naked church members. Never want guests that would offend our Lord. But they go out and they preach broadside and many are called by it, but not all of them are chosen and not all of you are chosen. The guests, both bad and good, are the Gentile converts that filled up the churches of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the king coming in to see his guests is the final judgment before the throne of God. The wedding garment is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and there are some in the churches of Jesus Christ that do not have the righteousness of Christ upon them. Verse 13, the speechless condition of the rude wretch is his lack of an excuse or defense for his sins. Hey, friend, don't get too excited about that word unless you're able to understand irony and sarcasm. I have a list here of all those that were invited to this marriage supper. It's called the Book of Life. You're not in it. Where's your wedding garment? You're naked. What did you come in here for? This isn't for you. Servants, get this piece of trash out of here. It's stinking up my house. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness where there can be weeping and gnashing of teeth for the rebellious, carnally-minded existence he lived even though he sat in my house and heard the preaching of the gospel and he took my name in his lips and he took the name of my son in his lips and he sang about my son and he was baptized in the name of my son but he never lived like a Christian. Get him out of here. Jesus will say, I never knew you. You don't belong at my wedding. You are not in my book of life. I did not die for you. Get out of here, you workers of iniquity. Matthew 7, if you think that I'm making it up. The first lesson is in the first seven verses. Jesus sent his apostles to invite the Jews to the gospel marriage of Jesus Christ. Paul not only said it in Acts 28, but he said it also in Acts 13. Ye have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, I go to the Gentiles. That was the transitional period of time from John and Jesus, approximately 30 A.D., to the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 A.D., that the Bible calls the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9.10. Reformation meaning the worship of God was being reformed where two systems of worship ran side by side. The two systems were the Old Testament system of Moses, the New Testament system of John and Jesus. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. The two systems ran side by side, 30 to 70, the time of Reformation. Then the destruction of Jerusalem, which ended 
the Old Testament system of worship. There was no longer a temple. There was no longer a city of Jerusalem. There was no longer a priesthood. There was no longer an altar. There hasn't been an animal sacrifice made since. And then the ministerial students of our brother Paul went into the world, and we had the lesson that starts in verse 8. They went into the hedges and highways, and they invited Gentiles in. And lo and behold, in God's mercy, you are not a Hindu this day. You are not a Buddhist this day, nor are you a Muslim this day. It is by God's mercy, not by your intellect. It is not by your good parents. It is by God's mercy that gave you good parents, that brought you under the sound of these servants who went out to furnish a wedding for the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to separate the goats from the sheep and put the goats at his left hand and the sheep at his right hand in a day that is coming very soon. There are many false talkers. There are many false professors that get baptized and get into churches like yours because of the frailty of your pastor and of every pastor that has come before me. Jesus would say to his own apostles, don't try to rip out every church member that you believe is on their way to hell. Because in tearing out the tares, you might grab some wheat. It's hard sometimes to see the difference. Wait until the end of the world. Then my servants, the angels, that have seen the book of life, will not tear up any wheat, and they will get the tares out. What are the tares? That's another parable from Matthew 13. They're the seed sown with the devil that gets into the churches of Jesus Christ. How do you find them? The bitterness that's in their hearts. They follow the devil. They have black hearts that are bitter. They get angry about the dumbest, foolish, weakest, pitifulest things. They can speak so sarcastically, harshly, and critical about other people while they have more sins than anyone they've ever met. They do not love the worship of God. They do not give thanks to God, nor do they delight in praising Him. And when you talk to them, they can talk about their job until they're blue in the face, politics, the military, sports, and other idiotic wastes of time of humanity. But I'm thankful to be an ambassador of the blessed and only potentate. And those fruitless trees that grow up in our midst at times before God exposes them for me to get thrown out of here, I know that God will burn them up like the fat of a lamb. Because I can read it in Psalm 37 and I can read it in Luke 13. But I ask you this day, have you made light of the Son of God? Will you please allow me to try to bring your minds together right now with the preaching of this day? How do you hear the gospel? When you hear preaching like this today, how does it affect you? How much does it affect you? If it doesn't affect you very much, then you're making light of it. And I'm speaking on behalf of the God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, who is coming to burn this earth up with fervent heat and melt everything that you have ever seen or built. Past the time of your sojourning here in fear. You're all getting older. I've been your pastor for a long time. Do you make light of it? The enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ are called belly worshippers in the Bible. They're called belly worshippers because they worship the sensual pleasures that your physical body derives from things like food and sex. 
They're called belly worshippers because they worship their belly, which is this, which we call the place that makes us hungry so that we want to scarf down 12 pieces of pizza. It's belly worship. But those belly worshipers are the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ that get into His churches, like the church at Philippi in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Do you know what the guilty statement is that is made about them? They mind earthly things. They mind earthly things. That means they're belly worshipers. As belly worshipers, they're the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are making light of heaven. God has prepared a place of infinite duration, of infinite glory, of infinite peace and pleasure in His presence forever. And you get excited about something stupid and vain and vexing and very temporal in this world? You are making light of it. You can sit and rip through some romance novel. You can sit and read a sports book. You can sit and watch some stupid, inane football game for three or four hours, but you don't have time to read the Word of God. You are making light of it. You will go work out in the gym for your stupid little biceps, your scrawny little buzzards with your pencil necks, You're absolutely worthless in the sight of God. You will diligently work out and you will eat right, but will you read the Word of God and exercise yourself unto godliness, which is 1 Timothy 4, 7, in front of bodily exercise profiteth little. You are making light of it. I am making light of it. How do we hear the gospel? Have we made our calling and election sure? Second Peter 1 would tell us to give all diligence to the task. All diligence. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11. Give all diligence. All diligence. It's the most important matter in your life to make your calling and election sure. Because you know what that 14th verse said? For many are called, but few are chosen. How do I know that I'm in the many? I have church membership. I've been baptized. I'm in the many. I was called. I heard the gospel. I saw a church. I go. I sit. I warm the foam rubber. I mouth the words of the songs. I walk out and I live my life until the next time I have to go. You're in the many. How do you get in the few or how do you know you're in the few? I'll tell you how you get in the few. You're chosen. The word chosen, you know, mean many are called but few are chosen. That's a passive voiced verb, meaning somebody else did the choosing and you're the object of their choice. That's the blessed God of heaven and his election and predestination of us to be his sons. But how do we know we're in the few? Many are called, but few are chosen. How do we know? We make our calling and election sure by giving all diligence to add to our faith virtue, to our virtue knowledge, to knowledge Patience to patience, temperance to temperance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness to brotherly kindness, charity. Those are the eight things of Second Peter chapter 1. And if you do these things, you shall never fall, but an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you know you're saved? It has nothing to do with any decision you have ever made. It has to do with how 
closely you are living a gospel life of godliness and obedience and love and devotion and excitement and joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything less than that, you could have deceived yourself and you are in the many, but not in the few. First Peter one seventeen. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Do you want to be broken right now by falling on the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of your neglect of Him? Or do you want to go home and do what you did last Sunday afternoon and have Him grind you to powder? Do you like your stupid little job where you go and shuffle merchandise? I read it says they made light of the kingdom of heaven and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Are you in the many by being in this assembly this day? Or are you in the few by having been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul would say of the Thessalonians, and I can say this of many of you, most of you, I thank God upon every remembrance of you for your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. You are in the few. There's others in here that I cannot say that of. I have never seen your faith do any working. I have never seen your love do any laboring. I've never seen your hope give you patience. Instead, you whine and complain. You worry and fuss. You want more and more attention yourself. I don't know whether you're elect or not. You snuck in here. In my sermon today, eh, you think it's a little hard, you think it's a little harsh, I know one thing, that all of you are going to think that your your pastor was a gentle, compromising pushover when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven asks, what in the world do you think you're doing here? Bind him hand and foot and get him out of here. What should I do? Repent. Break your life up on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and rise to fashion it, not according to the lusts of your ignorance in times past, but fashion it according to the holy God that we worship. As we learned this morning in 1 Peter 1. I hope it hasn't been too many minutes. I hope it hasn't been too many places in Scripture. I hope that it's been just right. That we will go out of here and that the God of heaven will know His worship is no light thing to us. It's the most important thing to us. And he will have a smile on his face at many, many making their calling and election sure. That of this church it can be said there are many called, but there are also many in it that are chosen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.